Hi, my name is Paul Caroli, and I host a podcast called Changing Denver. It's a monthly show about our city's physical spaces, how we make them, and how they make us. But it's so much more than that. It's the conversations, ideas, and stories that define Denver's perpetual state of flux. Find more from our team at changingdenver.com and join the conversation on Twitter at Changing Denver. Denver's changing. We can help. You have all made it to the dance. You have all made it, made it, Coming to you from the X-Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 118. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again, and a happy holiday season to you. This is going to be the last episode of the year. It's December 21st, four days before Christmas. We are, what, five days before Hanukkah? And then, what, who's working the following week? Who works between Christmas and New Year's? A bunch of you do. I know that you do because I've done this podcast now for almost three years and I know that work schedules are weird all across the board, but traditionally we think of not working during that week. Now, in the spirit of this holiday season, I bring you this week's guest. His name is Brad Lucero and he is the chief operating officer of the Stout Street Foundation. Now, the Stout Street Foundation is a therapeutic community helping those addicted to alcohol or other substances. And it's a two-year immersive program. And he goes into it in great detail on this week's episode. And it's fascinating stuff. It's a fairly unique style of program to Colorado. And we talk about its origin. We talk about its founding, his father's history with it, his entry into the organization about 10 years ago. Stout Street has been around for 40 years. They celebrated their 40th this year, which is just incredible. Anything that can last that long. Uh, is clearly a really great organization and worth supporting. So getting back to why I wanted to do this episode this week. This is not my favorite time of year. This is not my favorite holiday season for reasons that are probably too long to go into right now. And that might be a topic for a future show or maybe never because I don't necessarily like talking about it. But what I do like is when I can take this season and I can look at the spirit of the season And I can say, what are we really trying to do? You know, what is this actually about? And I was very moved by what the Stout Street Foundation does. And in this episode, Brad tells us about how the holidays are rough where they are. You can imagine, if you're recovering from addiction, you probably don't want to be living where you are living. You've probably had a rough go of it. You might want to be with some family. You might want to reconnect with some people from your past. But he talks about how the community supports itself, how the older residents reach out for the younger residents. When I went and interviewed Brad, I happened to walk in the same day a young man was checking in and getting ready to start his journey, which I put myself in his shoes for a moment. As he answered the receptionist, she said, how are you feeling? And he said, I'm nervous. And I thought, you know what? I'm nervous for you because you are trying to turn the page to a better chapter of your life. And God, what a day. I mean... What a day in that young man's life, and I hope it is a turning point for him, and I hope he turns it around. I didn't even talk to him. I didn't exchange any words. I just happened to be in the same room with him as he was getting ready to begin this journey. So this is a great, great episode. Brad is a terrific guy. I'd like to give a quick hat tip to Chris Medina, who hooked us up. Chris and Brad are lifelong friends. They met 
in like kindergarten and they've been pals ever since. So Chris hooked me up with Brad and this is a great episode. Uh, thank you, Chris. And I hope we did right by you, Brad. I hope we did right by you and Stout Street. I'm enormously proud of this one. And I think it's a great way to end the year. So I'm really proud of the work that I've done this year. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Feel free to give me some feedback. I'm on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Pinterest, all under the same handle, J-O-A-T-Pod. Feel free to get in touch with me on any of those platforms. You can also find all of the episodes I've done this year or the previous two years at johnofalltrades.us. That's J-O-N of alltrades.us. If you're listening to us on iTunes, thank you. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, thank you very much. Those are both great platforms to stay up to date with John of All Trades. You can subscribe at either of those locations and get brand new episodes delivered right to your listening device. You don't even have to do anything. All right, that's enough plugs for now. Let's close out the year on a high note. This is Brad Lucero. He's the Chief Operating Officer from the Stout Street Foundation. They are doing incredible work. It's a pleasure to highlight them, and his episode starts right now. Well, it's the opposite of last year, right? Last year, right. it was the same type of ugly games, but we were finding ways to win. Oh, yeah, okay. This year, it's ugly, and then they're losing ugly. <laughs> yeah, it, it, well, I think if you if you follow – are you a baseball fan too? Yeah. Okay. If you follow, like, analytics, if you follow sabermetrics, right. everyone regresses to the mean eventually. Like, over time, you, everything kind of evens out and averages out. Sure. So to your point, you know, if we're winning ugly games last year – then this year, yeah, maybe the chips aren't going to fall our way because it all evens out over the long term. I think that's where we're at, unfortunately. Yeah, which is too bad. I uh, got to go to the Super Bowl last year, which was... Get out! Yeah, How was it? It was incredible. My were, wife was pregnant as all get out. <laughs> um, I think, let's see, our baby was born the end of March, and that was early oh, February. Oh, jeez. So she was like 36, 35 and, weeks pregnant, yep, something like that? Yep. And so we <laughs> got uh, lucky enough to be picked in the Broncos lottery thing. Oh, wow. We like, oh, because you have season tickets? Yeah. Nice. So we were like, this is a once-in-a-lifetime type piece. And, <laughs> right. and I looked at her, and I was like, if you're up for it, we'll do it. And we ended up... Uh, where was it again? It was in Santa Clara, okay. uh, where the 49ers play. Yeah. How was that stadium? <clears throat> I hear it sucks. It's brand new, right? Uh, but it wasn't much to look at. <laughs> it's supposed to be like the only green stadium in the country. Like, everything's supposed to be solar-powered or whatever. <laughs> right, but, okay. Uh, Oh, jeez. Nick, let me call you back. Why don't you call me back? Bye. Anyway, sorry about that. But, so, I mean, I, <laughs> if the stadium is not much to look at, that that seems like a perfect metaphor for Santa Clara. Yeah. Where you can get, like, this nothing, like, 1960s-style ranch house for, like, $2 million. Easy. Right? Easy. Yeah, it was insane. We we flew out because of our, our three-year-old at the time. Yeah. We were like, well, we're not spending a week out in San Francisco, so we, if we're going to do this, we got to get in and get out. So <laughs> we flew out uh, the morning of the game. Oh, geez! At like seven a.m., uh -huh. landed in Oakland. <laughs> took a bus from Oakland up to the stadium. They had a tailgate. Went to the game. Went back to Oakland after the game and flew out that night. <laughs> so Dude. my wife was a trooper. To, to get through all that and, and being that pregnant yeah 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 we had to take a few breaks sitting on the sidewalk uh sure so her feet couldn't breathe a little bit but yeah other than that she did awesome and and thankfully they won made well, it all worth it. yeah well and not only that but like the pressure on the lungs is so great oh my god that you know like my wife would climb up three stairs and be like okay 
I think we got to make base camp here. Yeah. Let's try for the summit in the morning. Hundred <laughs> percent. But uh, anyway, um, that's awesome. So we're sitting here in Stout Street Foundation's office, your office. Yep. Brad Lucero, you are the chief operating officer of the Stout Street Foundation. Yes, sir. And uh, it's a pleasure to to get to come here. I hadn't really known much about this until Chris started telling me about it. And, right. You know, he told me he plays in your golf tournament and stuff like that. Right. And he suggested we get together, and when I started looking into it, I go, man, this would be a great show. I can't wait to talk about it. So, Absolutely. Would you give me the sort of overview, the 30,000-foot, the elevator pitch for what Stout Street Foundation is? Yeah, absolutely. So Stout Street's been around since 1976. Um, we celebrated our 40th anniversary this year. We're considered a long-term therapeutic community. Okay. Um, so it's for adults um, with substance abuse issues. Um, our program, what sets us apart, is that it's a two-year program. When you see most treatment centers in the state or, or um, locally, there, you know, you usually hear about a 30-day treatment, 28-day treatment. Yeah. So a two-year program is is pretty uh, unheard of anymore. Hmm. Um, Why is that? Well, it's just basically it's a you know it's a huge commitment, right? Right. Um, sure. Our population that comes to us, we have about 125 people in the program currently. Wow. Uh, men and women, they come to us as kind of a last-ditch effort uh, mm. before prison. So oh, these wow. are repeat uh, offenders. Okay. And it's not your first-time DUI people. This is gotcha. Uh, we're up to seven, eight, nine DUIs, and Yo. you're getting ready to go to prison for 10, 12, 15 years, or you have a chance to go do two years at Stow Street. Wow. Okay, so I mean, you've you've got people who have exhausted virtually every other option yep. coming here, and I mean, they're going to end up in prison or dead. Is exactly, exactly. So that's our that's our population, and that's our kind of um, specific niche that we we deal with. And the other piece that sets Stout Street apart is that it's a, a free program to come into. Oh wow! Okay, um, the majority of the. You know, the programs that you'll see on TV, like Passages Malibu and, you know, these these programs that, you know, cost as much as a, a Mercedes to get into for yeah. a month. That that ad to me, I, you, you mentioned Passages. Right. right. And you'll see it on, you know, while you're watching cable usually. Right. And you go, what is this? Like, who is this ad for? Yeah. Like, I, I, don't, I don't understand because, I mean, it looks like they're advertising a luxury resort or timeshares or something. 100%. Yeah. yeah. It, and, you know, they advertise... Um, kind of a cure type uh, philosophy is what uh -huh. it sounds like as opposed to something that, you know, you're going to have to work on uh, right. for the rest of your life. Well, so. it, it's almost like diet treatment. You know, you'll hear people talk about, you know, wanting to lose weight and there will be miracle cures. You know, it's like, come with us for 30 days or 60 days. It's like, no, if you want to keep the weight off, that's a lifelong kind of thing. Right. So, right. I mean, and it's I like anything else where they try and sell you a bill of goods and we have the miracle cure, right? Right. And, and Stout Street, I think... You know, we, we really put emphasis on the fact that, you know, your addiction didn't happen overnight. So mm. the fix isn't going to happen overnight either. And that's part of the reason that, you know, we've been so successful and a staple in the community for so mm -hmm. long is that the people that come to us as a last-ditch effort prior to prison, prior to death, like you touch base on, it's a long time commitment. But in the grand scheme of things, it's really not. Yeah. You well, know? yeah, in, 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 this, in the grand scheme of life, for right. sure. right. Um, two years is nothing. Right. Especially when you're looking at, like I said, potentially 10, 15 in prison. Yeah. Learning how to be a better criminal <laughs> versus here where we set you up with a job. We get you on a, a good routine. 
Um, you know, every aspect of day-to-day life is retaught essentially. Okay. So our program is, is set up that it's completely ran by the residents and that the older residents hold the younger residents accountable. So if you've been in the program for 18 months, the expectation is that somebody that's only been here two weeks, when you see them starting to slip on their behaviors or whatever's coming up, that they're holding each other accountable. You keep them in check. Yep, exactly. Okay. And so the, the day-to-day piece is very, very structured. And that's, you know, one of the, the biggest pieces that is huge for our residents because they're, they're the majority of them are used to having no sort of structure. Okay. They're not used to waking up and making their bed. They're not used to doing chores. They're not used to going and working an eight-hour day and then coming back um, and having classes and, and everything else that, that takes place in a, a day at Stow Street. So the structure piece right off the bat is something that takes the longest, I think, to get used to but also is, you know, one of the most valuable lessons. Well, sure. I mean, that, that integrates new habits because you figure if you're talking about people who are at the end of the line here, you know, their routine is probably wake up and use right. or, you know, wake up and go drink or what, like whatever it is. Right. Um, it, it's not good structure. It's bad structure. Uh, or, you know, I, I would say the absence of structure is bad structure. hundred percent. Um, because most people, whether we, we like it or not, are fairly habitual creatures. So, um, Well, and that's a, the biggest thing with our therapeutic community. Everything is, is centered around behavior modification. Mm-hmm. And so um, therapeutic communities uh, historically kind of have a, a reputation of being kind of rough, kind of – it's not a comfortable environment by any stretch of the imagination. It's not designed to be. Right, okay. But the, the structure that comes with – the behavior modification means that every aspect of your your day, someone else is keeping tabs on. Okay. So, for instance, John, if you wake up and you forget to make your bed, the way that the residents hold each other accountable is with what's called a write-up. Okay. And these write-ups, every, every rule violation in the foundation comes with um, hours on a bench, right? Okay. So, for instance, and they're all, I guess, exactly what you would imagine. They're all church pews, right? Mm-hmm. And so... If you wake up in the morning and you forget to make your bed and I'm your roommate and I see that, then I'll do a write-up. Hmm. Say John forgot to make his bed on Friday, three-hour write-up, hmm. and so on and so forth. So that night when you get that, part of this whole process is you taking accountability for it and saying, hmm. yeah, I did forget to do that. Right. So you'll write thank you on there. <laughs> are, are there are there consequences for not taking accountability? I mean – Well, so yeah, and that – it kind of um, – at that piece, it starts really showing your behaviors, okay. right? And so if this is something where you're lying, then becomes another. Uh, then piece. you're written up again? Right. Yeah, so, okay. So if you get three hours on the bench for the first rule, violation, hypothetically, and the next time it happens, so Saturday I wake up and you didn't make your bed again. Right. This time you say, yeah, yeah, I sure did. <laughs> and we catch you lying, or not we as staff, but the other residents who yeah. are holding you accountable, come to the uh, determination that, that you are lying about it, then that's five hours on the bench. Mm. Right? So there's all these kind of different steps to it. And, and you know, saying three hours on the bench doesn't sound like a, a huge de- a deterrent until I- you actually try to picture sitting on a on a wooden bench for for three hours and it's it's not again comfortable yeah with no like i mean no stimulation right no like so you're allowed to read self-help books okay and that's it okay 
if you fall asleep, time starts over. Okay, jeez. <laughs> you know, so in layman's terms, it's basically time out for adults. Okay, but yeah. It serves a very real purpose, and that is Sunday morning when you wake up, you're going to take that extra second to look at your bed <laughs> right. and make your bed because you don't want to do that again. Yeah, uh, yeah right? c- certainly. I mean, <laughs> that doesn't sound comfortable at all. And, I mean, what I'm kind of struck by is, you know, the the folks who come here are avoiding prison, right? Right. But there are consequences and there there are structure. Is it is it almost adjacent or is it almost uh, you know analogical to uh, to prison? It, you know, it's less than prison certainly right. because you have freedom and you're working and you're learning life skills. But in terms of the way it's structured, is is it fair to say that there are some similarities at all? I don't think so. Well, you, you can understand why I'd ask that question, sure, right? Right. I think the 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 goal of it is to kind of put things into perspective. Okay. Um, therapeutic communities kind of take on a, a life of their own, and that you know they're self governed essentially. I suppose in a, a prison setting, it's it's not structured. It's not it's not emphasis on changing your behaviors for the better. It's mm. emphasis on figuring out how to be sneakier. Mm. Right. It's, yeah. it's a survival piece in there. What we're putting emphasis on in the therapeutic community is being mindful of how your behaviors have gotten you thus far. And then by changing even the smallest behavior, which is making your bed each morning. Right. When you get out into a real life scenario, you're then hope, hoping to be able to pump your brakes prior to making a decision that you would have made prior. Gotcha. So you're rerouting the neural pathways 100%. in a lot of ways. Right. Okay. And to me, that's an important distinction. But as you're describing it, you know, I go, okay, I think it's important to at least ask and clarify here sure. in terms of that understanding. Something else I want to touch on is Mitch Hedberg, I think, had a joke about how. Love Mitch. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so you may remember this joke. Alcoholism is the only disease you can get, like, blamed for having. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's like, oh, Russell, you're an alcoholic. No one's ever like, oh, Russell, you have lupus. Right. You know, like, <laughs> can't, can't you live your life better so you don't have lupus? Right. I mean, how big is almost like uh, the social component, the shame component? You know, because there there is a subset of people in our society who want to view alcoholism or addiction as just – almost like a personal failing and not like a disease, mm-hmm. you know? So how much do you deal with that? How, how much does that factor into what you do here? Right. So I think our therapeutic community in general would say that we put the majority of the emphasis on being accountable for your behaviors, mm-hmm. right? There is a, there's a very real physical uh, addiction that, that takes place, right? And, and that's definitely a part of the recovery process that needs to be addressed. Certainly. But also we take a look at what caused you to get there in the first place. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And so the majority of our residents and the majority of addicts, I would say in general, have some sort of major trauma that happened very early on in life Hmm. and that for whatever reason, this uh, substance, whatever they found, uh, helps them deal with that. Yeah. Right? And so uh, although the, the, um, the physical aspects of it or something that that we address and that we acknowledge, we don't allow people to be victims to that and say that, well, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, but there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. Okay. It's it's focusing on this is this is where I'm at currently, and then these are the steps that I need to take 
to try to help myself feel better, get recovery. That's treatment and therapy, right? right? I mean, it, it's almost like anything else. If you let, let's say you've, uh, you know, you've, you've torn your ACL, right? Right. And you have surgery, you get it fixed. There's a very physical component, but then it's on you to do rehab and make lifestyle choices to Absolutely. ensure that your knee gets be- gets better, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, there's you're right. There is a personal choice, and and the onus, you know, the locus of control is internal in terms of how you deal with that going forward, right? Which I think is what you're articulating, right? And I and I think, um, you know, I've been here for ten years now. I've been around Style Street since I was born. Um, but the the one thing that's a very real piece is that there's no one way for everybody that comes through here mm-hmm. right there's nothing that we say that this is the cookie cutter answer to uh, recovery and if you do a b and c then right. you'll be good forever right it's a it's one of those pieces that our clinicians and and our uh, certified addiction counselors work you know hand in hand to make sure that each individual person is looked at on an individual basis and and so that they're not being um, clumped into the, the alcoholic category and, and right. let's, let's do this, this, and this, and then they'll be fixed. It's, you know, let's, let's talk about, you know, your, your childhood. Let's talk about, uh, everything that's gotten you to here and, and let's address some of that stuff. And, and our, our staff, uh, our, our CEO, Christopher Conway, um, you know, comes from a, a huge clinical background. You know, he started off as a, as a addictions counselor and has worked his way up, and and Nicholas Petricelli, who who oversees our programs, they both are in recovery themselves and know what it takes to be successful. But they're also open every day to figuring out what the the new best practices are. You yeah. know, different uh, things that that we can do to make the program better. And that was one of the big pieces that we put into play this year was really looking at how we can address some of this um, some of these traumas that are coming through because it's. It's a very real reoccurring theme with our residents. Mm. And, and by not addressing it, we weren't, uh, I mean, we were addressing it in one-on-one sessions, but not to the level that we felt like we um, should be. So, yeah. You mentioned that you've been around this place your entire life. Right. Can you dig into that a little bit more? How how did you come to get involved? Sure. Yeah. So my father um, founded Stout Street. Uh, he himself uh, was an addict. He was a heroin user uh, for probably the better part of 20 years. Wow. Heroin, alcohol. I think he was kind of a equal opportunity, whatever whatever was around type guy. Sure. Um, like while you were growing up? No, no. Um, like, so, like before you were born? Yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah, yeah. so approximately 1974-ish. Um, he had been just getting arrested over and over again for, you know, same thing all of our current residents are. Where sure. It's just, uh, repeat offenses, uh, you know, typically burglary or, you know, those type of things to, to feed your addiction. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, and so he gotten put into a halfway house here in Denver. I think the courts were just getting fed up with him. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Like, uh, please stop passing in front of us. Right. Yeah. yeah it's just kind of a, uh, uh, rotating door type piece where he was just in every other week, essentially. <laughs> right, right. Um, so he went to a halfway house uh, in Denver. He had met up uh, with a gentleman named Father Tom Dowd, and they, I guess for uh, you know, long story short, went out and looked at a program that had opened up in San Francisco called Delancey Street. And Delancey Street was kind of the first major therapeutic community in, in the U.S., um, and it was kind of at that point, a, a really new idea, right? 
so they went out and and saw the program. He never actually you know went through the program, but but essentially saw that this type of program was designed for exactly who he was as a as a as an addict and for people that just weren't getting it, you know, and that in early uh, or or short term treatment just right. wasn't going to help. Um, so he came back to Colorado and they they did a little bit of fundraising. Um, and if by fundraising, I mean really, you know, minute di- donations to to open up the first house, yeah, uh, which was on Stout Street, like uh, downtown. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was seventy uh, six, which is yep. uh, by the time they did the articles of incorporation and all that. That's why we kind of picked that as the the birth date for Stout Street. So so that's why you know this year was our fortieth. So he got clean then in uh, 74. I wasn't born until 83, but at that point, uh, Stow Street was was up and running. And so every – it was just it was just where I grew up. Um, yeah. I didn't physically live here. Yeah, but, of course. You know, Christmases and, and holidays and everything was, was at Stow Street. And so it was just part of uh, my childhood. And my, my sister, who's three years younger – um, same same thing. Was that strange at all? I mean, you run your own race as a kid, but right? When you would tell people about it, you know, what was their reaction to that? You don't have much of a context for what addiction is when you're when you're that little, no. Right? And so I would come and I would get babysitted by people that were pretty fresh in recovery in retrospect, <laughs> you know. Which is, I guess, looking back on it kind of helped kind of broaden my horizons a little bit and and that it wasn't a judgmental piece i just looked at them as as people yeah and and so even though their families might have turned their back on them or or, um, you know whatever crazy stuff they had done to get to where they were at they were just they were just whoever i was playing catch with that day or you know what i mean sure yeah so i grew up in that environment well and as a society we we tend we we have a tendency to dehumanize folks. You know, we right. we can we can look at someone who has struggled with addiction. Uh, I I had had a recovering addict on my show, and you know he was he was pretty much at the end, and he found Providence Network, which uh, you know I'm sure is uh, a competitor of yours, but saved his life. Sure, you know, and through both, I, I think factors beyond your control, and through your behavior you can end up feeling very isolated and very alone. And when we, when we fail to show each other humanity, that's not good for anyone. Right. You know, I, and I mean, that, that's what's so frustrating to me on both sides with our current political environment. You know, not right. to editorialize here, but it's, it's easy to dehumanize the other side if we don't know them. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, you're growing up with, with people who have, they, they've had troubles, right. right? But they're still people. Right. Like there's still something at the core of them, and I mean, you got to experience that firsthand, which I can understand why you would stick around and right. you know and and continue work here. So I, that was never my plan. Right? Well, of course not. It no. was. It was. Uh, I I found very few people plan to do like right. it. I didn't want to do very similar to what my dad did. Right. Growing up, I I'm doing it now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I, th- some things again are kind of beyond our control. Right. No, I think I lucked out in that um, my mom also worked for Stow Street. Right okay. after um, she she moved out to Denver uh, from Nebraska to uh, become a nun out here. <laughs> really, and um, one way or another, I think my dad was out uh, hustling, trying to get stuff for Stow Street, and um, they came across each other, and so she decided to. Uh, live on the wild side for a minute, I guess. And, 
so she she um, perhaps being a nun was not her calling after all. There you go. Yeah. There you go. And and so she had gone to school uh, for psychology and sociology, and so I think it brought a different uh, piece to Stout Street. Sure. My dad was kind of the streetwise, had been through everything, and my mom was, uh, you know, not an addict, nothing, uh, no experience with it. Right. Um, and and they came together, and, and that, you know, really, I think, is what, what helped Stout Street become what it was yeah. or what it is because my dad had a, a very real – and and smart business sense to him yeah um, and my mom brought the compassion and brought the uh knowledge and, yeah. and heart and the the two pieces kind of came together and yeah it's almost like hard skills and soft skills exactly right? exactly and and i think right now staff street embodies both of those those pieces so my dad passed in in 2006 about a week before I'd graduated from college. Oh my. Um, and so I went up to UNC and went through the business school up there and I didn't necessarily have anything planned out that I was going to do afterwards. Right. Um, but when he passed kind of, uh, unexpectedly at that point, Stout street was in some financially, uh, tight situations, right? Some financial peril. Yeah. If you will. And so my mom, who was still uh, part of the program asked if I would, would come down and help get our fundraising department started. Mm-hmm. And so, um, did you have any experience with that? I mean, you were fresh out of college, but I, was that a focus for you? No, no. no. I, had, you know, done some nonprofit classes. I had done, right. you know, general business, uh, school <laughs> stuff, but nothing as far as come down and figure out how to write grants or, <laughs> right. or, uh, put on fundraising events, Yeah, you know? So it was kind of a, learn on the fly type situation. And those, those are not, I mean, those, those are not easy skills. No. I, I mean, and to learn on the fly, I, I go back to when I got out of grad school, um, I claimed I had event planning experience on my resume. Nice. And so my first job, I was working for this trade association. He goes, okay, you have, and you know, I was answering the phone and getting the mail and stuff. And he said, okay, well, I was just looking over your resume and it said you have event planning experience. Here's what we need to do. It's our annual meeting. Uh, about 400 attendees. Um, we need to have lunch. We need to get the speakers lined up. Um, book a venue. Your, your budget is $15,000. And I go, okay. <laughs> I'm going to go <laughs> have a right heart up. attack now. Right. But, you know, you jump in and you, you figure it out. Right. Right. I mean, that's, that's what it is to be a professional. Yeah. I mean, probably still you're dealing with stuff that you go, I have, I never in my wildest dreams. Thought I would have this as a problem. 100%. Let alone, how do I solve it? Right. right. So, how'd yeah. you do? Well, so far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> but in 06, like when, when you came so, down. And- yeah. 06 was a lot of, uh, a lot of asking questions, right? Yeah. Every, everything I did, I had to rely on just picking people's brain that had been there. And yeah. we were lucky enough to have some board members, uh, specifically a, a woman named Joanne Law, who's uh, been on the board for a long time. Uh, she just, took me to some events. She, um, you know, had been used to going to rotary events or used to going right. to these events that, you know, being fresh out of college, I'd never been to. Right. So, or other nonprofit sort of galas right, exactly. and banquets. So, and so that seeing kind of silent thing, yeah. auctions in person and seeing how that worked or going to a golf tournament. Right. You know, prior to graduating from college, I'd never played golf. Right. And, they, <laughs> and then they came out and our, uh, CFO, uh, Darcy, do you play now? Oh yeah. Yeah. How yeah, are you? Are uh, you good? I'm medium bad. You're <laughs> <laughs> I 
think, I think on my, on my good days, I can convince myself that I can hang with anyone. Right. Um, but those happen once or twice a season. Well, I, I found, uh, I was playing like, because I used to work in the corporate giving department yeah. of a large company. So I played a lot of golf. Nice. And I found I can blend in really well in a scramble. Yeah. If I'm the best player in the scramble, then we're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Right? Absolutely. Um, and I was playing this one tournament, and I crush it off the tee. Like, first shot. It's unreal. It, and it's right down the middle of the fairway. It's a dog leg. So I put it right in the elbow, right? Yeah. Next shot is the approach shot. I put it literally four feet from the cup. And then so I get a natural birdie out of it. And they go, all right, well, we know who the ringer is. And I go, oh, you guys are going to be disappointed the next 17 holes. <laughs> I used them all up. I used them all up. I'm like, I didn't mean to shoot it like right on the on the first hole. but uh, it's a great feeling, though. It was nice, man. I, right. What can you say? I know, exactly. So I had to learn the rules of golf first prior <laughs> yeah, right? to figuring out how to put on a golf tournament. Um, so our CFO, Darcy, huge avid golfer, yeah. took me under his wing and explained, uh, you know, everything from square one. And then from there, after gathering as much info, same thing with our writing grants, you know, it was just yeah. a lot of research online. It was figuring out the Colorado common grant application and then, right. you know, just plugging in information about Stout Street and, I would submit them to these big organizations and we would get turned down and, and then calling them back and, and saying, can you give me some pointers on, you know, what, what was I missing? What? Yeah. How can I be more successful? Exactly. And, and so it was a lot of that for the first year. Yeah. Um, you know, the, we had a golf tournament out at Arrowhead again, picked the fanciest course and <laughs> uh, public course in Colorado for my first go around and yeah. in retrospect, you know, way too expensive for where we were at. And sure, you know, we maybe had 40 golfers that showed up and which for us at the time was a, was a big deal. Yeah. You that's get 40 people to come out and pay a hundred bucks. Um, yeah. 10 foursomes. Not bad. Not bad. Um, but I look at, you know, this last year and, uh, Terry Smith, who's our director of development now, we're we've we've been selling out our golf tournament early in the year yeah you know so we're getting 144 golfers quick um this year we actually did a double shotgun where we had nice probably 120 go off in the morning and another 60 in the afternoon so it's gradually gotten bigger and seems like it's heading in the, the right direction and same things with our our grant department i remember the first uh thousand dollar grant we got i think from a local walmart uh, gave us a thousand dollars, and you know we were doing backflips over that. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, we just got notification about a week ago that that one of the grants that we had submitted to the Daniels Fund came through for for seventy five thousand. Wow. And so, you know, when you when you look at kind of the the difference that ten years has made for us, it's just been it's just been huge. Yeah, the trajectory is amazing. I, to that point, I mean, as we record this, I just got like they they. I, I got a profile piece written about me in the Denver Business Journal. That's awesome. I think back 10 years ago when I was pitching media and I didn't like that's part of my job. Like, right. and I was working for a firm where we had a client that wanted to get a lot of media coverage for an event they were doing. So I was just dialing every reporter in town. And the first guy to pick it up was this guy named Ed Dentry who wrote an outdoor column in, uh, in the Rocky Mountain News. The the news bite I got was literally like I'm I'm making my hand you know this mm. size that's what three inches yeah so I got this little three inch mention on the back page of the sports section and I cut it out and I put it like in a folder and I go look at this right. like that's my story that's and awesome. it, it's something you know who reads that in terms of the overall paper but right. you got to start somewhere right yep. I mean you get a thousand dollars you go 
That's a thousand dollars we didn't have. Yeah. That's awesome. Right. So in your time here, by the way, what did you what did you have designs on doing before you sort of ended up here? Did did you have an idea? No. I was gonna, you know, get get uh get my piece of paper from UNC that <laughs> right. said I uh, had a certain set of skills and, and then I was just gonna start uh going on interviews and, and Did you have a focus like accounting, marketing? It was a general something? business degree. So wow. I could have done, you know, you know, whatever with it. But no, I, I didn't have anything uh, laid out. I had a bunch of friends that, that went into the like banking yeah, yeah, um, yeah. type stuff, and they're still doing it, and they're they're getting their um, you know paychecks with with multiple commas and and they're happy about it. But you know the Stout Street I think is one of those pieces. Now that I've been here for this long, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Sure. Although. I leave here frustrated sometimes, and I, I try not to bring that home. I think the the reward piece, right? We've got our we just had our Christmas party mm-hmm. uh, last weekend, where the residents and their families come, um, and we did it up in uh, Brighton at this uh, Adams County Fairgrounds. Being in there, and you've got you know a hundred and some residents uh, with their families, it really puts things into perspective. Yeah, right. And, and a lot of them are are there with their kids. Um, they're there with kids that didn't, didn't see them last Christmas cause they were out running the streets or, or right. doing whatever. And, and this Christmas they're, they're holding them and giving them presents. And, and there's a, a certain level of, I guess, satisfaction that you get from those situations. You know, there's always going to be the frustrations in these fields when you hear about so-and-so relapsed or so-and-so overdosed, you yeah. know, and, and those are, those are those pieces that you, I don't know, for lack of a better word, I, it's kind of like, that Bill Belichick uh, press conference last year when they got uh, the Patriots got beat and he just kept saying we're on to we're on to the next one we're on to the next one yeah you know and, and it's not a matter of being cold it's just a matter of understanding what you have the ability to to influence now and it's people that are still with us well to that point and I think it's a great point I spoke on this show. Uh, Erin Stereo, who's a DJ, she used to be a 911 dispatcher. Okay. And she said, every day of your job is someone's worst day of their life. Right. Right? And I think that's similar to the point that you're making here. And she said, it was hard for me because I used to carry them with me when I'd go home. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that. Right. Because just from a personal survival perspective. You know, you need to take a minute and you need to mourn that and you need to feel that, whatever it is, but you got to let it go. Right. I mean, that sounds just very, very difficult. No, it definitely is. And I, I think that's one of the things that we put emphasis on for our staff is, is self-care. Yeah. Um, and we do a lot of, or we try to do some staff outings, some, we do a little bit extra PTO, that type of stuff, or right. if you need a mental health day, just because the burnout rate in this field is is really high i'll bet it is and especially if you you take it home and you dwell on the what ifs and you know what could i have done differently for so and so um oh that'll eat you alive won't it 100 percent. this christmas party when you get to see the other side of things right and you get to see the smiles and you get to see the families and the it's a mix we'll have we'll have the kids coming there to to visit their their parents that are in treatment or we have parents coming to visit their kids in treatment yeah wow and so because you have you have all ages here, don't you? We do. Yeah, we, it's it's eighteen and up. Um, and our oldest resident, I want to say it's probably early sixties right now. You know, so yeah. it's a wide array, and and there's a certain level of 
happiness that you feel with those things that, um, you know, you can't really replicate. Yeah. And, and so Christmas is the one, uh, it's my second favorite day of the year for Stout Street. My first favorite is, uh, mid February is when we do our graduation ceremony. Nice. So our residents that finish the two year program, we, we do a big, uh, graduation ceremony. Mm-hmm. We, uh, a lot of our residents haven't graduated anything in life. Hmm. You know, if that, that makes sense. A lot of them sure. will have, uh, have a high school graduation or college graduation, but a lot of them have never finished anything like this before. And so we get the, you know, the big wooden plaques and we go through and do a big ceremony and, and acknowledge how big of an accomplishment this is. Yeah. And, and that day is, is my favorite day of the year because that's when, when the families are there and, and the residents really get to see what all that work was for. Well, you know, I, to bring that full circle, as I came in today and I walked in, there's a receptionist downstairs and told her I was here, um, you know, to talk with you. There was a young man here checking in right. and it was his very first day. Right. And she asked him, you know, how are you feeling? And he goes, I'm nervous. and I can't imagine it's got to be strange when you're on your graduation day. It's only natural to look back at how it all began. Sure. And the difference that you must feel is remarkable because I can imagine how nervous he is. It's a two year program. That's a commitment. That's a wholesale lifestyle change. Right. And you know, I, I put myself in his shoes for just a second and I thought, wow, like what a day, right? You know, what a day, especially, you know, you're, just over a week from Christmas. Yeah. You know, this is the, the last place in the world that we're <laughs> all, we're all, you know, running around trying to get our last minute gifts and, yeah. um, you know, figuring out if, if we picked out the right prime rib or, you know, that yeah, type yeah, of, yeah. uh, day to day stuff that, that kind of becomes our concern. And then you have something like that where you see somebody uh, on the very first step of their journey towards yeah. working towards, um, having some, uh, somewhat of a normal life being a better version of themselves. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so the holidays are a hard time around here for, for a lot of the residents just because this isn't where they want to be. Right. But I think especially when we talked earlier about the older residents looking out for the younger residents, that's a big piece um, this time of year as well, where um, they've gone through it before. Yeah. You know, this, the, the gentleman you were talking about that was checking in today, he'll have somebody that have been here for 15 months check in on him and say, I know what day one was like. Yeah. I know that this sucks. Yeah. I know how you're feeling. Yeah. yeah. But rest assured that if I can make it to here, you can too. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, that piece of hope is, is something that, that helps keep them here and, and keep them going. Yeah. I want to ask you about one other thing because uh-huh. I always like to ask about issues of culture. Mm. I, I, I always look for pop culture entry points into, you know, because most people, not most people, but a lot of people understand the world through a pop culture lens, okay. right? So I think when you talk about, you know, um, therapeutic facilities, you know, two-year treatment programs, even 30-day treatment programs, one of the things that I think of first in terms of my reference point is mm-hmm. Dr. Drew. Right. Right. Um, he had uh, celebrity rehab mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, sober house and that kind of thing. And I remember watching that show because I, I feel like that show was on like eight, seven, eight years ago, something like that. Yep. I remember thinking, I'm like, okay, this is interesting seeing what treatment is actually like. But I'm like, wait a minute, this is TV. Right. Like, and, and after a certain point, I go, this doesn't feel like uh, what treatment is actually like. This feels like exploitation. Right. 
So I'm curious as to your take on that. As far as the that show itself? Or or just the way this is understood. Right. You know, what treatment is, what it isn't, you right. know, how it's perceived, you know, versus reality. Sure. I think I think if we were to put cameras inside of Stow Street, it would be probably one of the number one rated television shows on TV. Really? <laughs> okay. Uh without having to script anything and without having to do anything else. And it's just a, a matter of the you know, the, the dramas and the ups and downs of everyday mm-hmm. life. And, and there's no one day in here that's that's the same, right? And so it's... Well, and I'm sure some of the war stories that, right. that, that people have, you know, whether they're living on the streets or... Right. Um, I, I remember feeling very uncomfortable when I, when I had Spencer on my show, right. um, who was an addict, and he was telling me about, you know, sleeping in garbage dumpsters and... Right. You know, talking about how he had broken his ankle and it never healed, and he was drink. You know, he was drinking with these old like army veterans, and I'm go- like, I felt like a voyeur, right. you know. But but that was part of his journey, and he wanted to share it, right. you know, as, almost as like a message of hope. Right. Well, I think that's a that's a big piece, you know. And there's a lot of stories in here that, you know, when I hear them, you, you almost can't believe it's real life, you know, yeah. because it's so far. I never knew my dad as an addict. You know, thank God I never, sure. I never saw that side of him, you know, um, but I had a, a gentleman I was talking to not too long ago that was, uh, telling us about, you know, how it was his job, uh, to drive his parents home from the bar when he was eight years old. Oh my God. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm picturing, I have a nine year old at home, right. And we're worried about making dioramas of Mesa Verde and, <laughs> right. you know, what, what normal life is like out there and, and. You know, this this guy's very formative years were waiting outside a bar, waiting to drive his folks home, uh, you know, probably not even be able to reach the, the pedals, right? Yeah. And so it puts things into perspective, right? It, it really, there's always going to be people out there that have it better than us, and there's always going to be people out there that are struggling, I think, as far as the pop culture stuff goes and Dr. Drew. It's good in a sense that it starts the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started addiction and substance abuse was something that people kind of whispered about, Yeah, you know, and it's these shows have helped bring it more mainstream in that it doesn't have to be something that people are ashamed to talk about. It's not quite as stigmatized in that way. Yeah, exactly. And so the more that it becomes um, something that people are willing to talk about, the more it's getting people the opportunity to get out there and get better. That's good. And so I, I would say that that, that piece has probably been one of the benefits of it, but yeah, there's there's a lot of that stuff that does feel like it's exploitation, and they're 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 you know when I joked earlier about this being a, a number one hit TV show, it's 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 because of all the moving pieces and all the characters and everything that you couldn't yeah. write this. You know, no, you of course not. When you look out this window and you see the that seven story uh, old hotel over there that is filled with people from every walk of life and and. And they're all on the same uh, journey together uh, to get better. Is that your facility? Yeah. So this is this is the residential hall Yeesh. right here. Yeah. Sorry about that. And so the residential hall. Okay. This used to be an economy inn when okay. uh, Stapleton Airport was up up and running. And so um, when Stapleton closed, this whole area just took a downturn. Oh, yeah. And so um, this was one of those kind of 1999 a night room turned into a real dingy hotel. Yeah. Um, and we'll actually have residents come back that used to come here to use. Oh, wow. Um, you know, 15, back in the 15 day, years yeah. ago. 
um, that are now coming back and you can kind of see them looking around like I've been here before. <laughs> and then like, all what of a sudden this it place? clicks like, oh, yeah, yeah, I came just crack here back in, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, back in 96. Uh, exactly. And so um, we've been here for 12 years and, you know, we have gradually tried to um, – upgrade and improve sure, um, yeah. our facility as we can go. It was pretty beat up when we got it. And so as donations come in or as funds come available, we'll, you know, try to renovate a floor or upgrade our equipment or And is that part of your job as COO? Yeah. I mean that's a that's a huge part of wow. my job is is trying to figure out um what needs the most attention the quickest. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. So um Right this second, we're in the process of uh, finishing up kind of our last end-of-the-year projects. And we have an off-site facility that's over off of Colfax and Vine, which is after people spend 18 months here, Mm -hmm. um, then they go there for the last six months of the program. And that facility is designed to operate closer to kind of a halfway house type setup where they're, they're out working on their own in charge of their own bills, in charge of everything, uh, but it's still structured yeah, yeah. Um, over there. So we've had some big renovation projects going on over there um, throughout the year this year. And so we're uh, in the process of finishing that piece up. But, you know, being a nonprofit, our biggest piece we rely on is, is in-kind donations. And so we'll do a lot of pushes. We have a whole department downstairs with, with four residents that – We'll just make phone calls nonstop to local companies, national companies. Um, you know, we'll partner with organizations that'll, you know, those big coat drives that they do mm-hmm. uh, once a year. At, at, um, I can't remember what dry cleaner it is, but it's little stuff like that that you don't think of. Um, but when you have 125 people under a roof, making sure that they all have uh, the clothes that they need and the um, uh, day-to-day necessities is, is one of the the biggest pieces yeah. because we, we were designed to be self-sustaining and that our residents that go out and work in the community, that those funds come back to help offset their uh, room and board and treatment fees, you know, but as expenses go up every year for everything, of course um, it became not enough. And that was why we started the development department to kind of help offset those and help raise funds um, outside of the money that our residents were generating yeah. um, already. So, that's the you know the biggest part is is just keeping those funding streams coming in and, and making sure that we have all the all the needs for the residents met because everything from food to medical appointments to you know dental appointments and um, it's a lot you know yeah. providing and and like I said there's no cost to come into the program so um, the expectation is not that residents family members are paying for this stuff from a distance it's that they're going out and working and and earning the money to pay for what they need. Yeah. Essentially. So, well, I think that's a perfect time to segue into the part of the show where we do plugs, which is, uh, where can we find more about Stout street foundation? Where can we donate money? It is the holiday season. Sure. So, I mean, the timing is perfect. This episode is, is live on, let's see, December 21st. Okay. Yeah. Perfect time. And we've, uh, our website is www.stoutstreet, S T O U T S T R E E T dot org. On there, we have, uh, links for kind of how to get involved, um, donations that are needed. We have a donate now button, um, if you're looking for any end of the year donation, uh, tax write off type stuff, obviously any right. of that would be, uh, very appreciated. We, 
are in the process of getting a new website put together that will be launching at the beginning of the year that will have a little bit more in-depth info. But for right now, that's the, the best place to, to find us. And, and obviously, if um, you or anyone that you know is looking for, for treatment, um, certainly all the information is on the website as well as far as contact information and, and how, to get, how to get more uh, info about the program itself. It's, it's one of those uh, pieces that we've, we've kind of been Colorado's you know, best-kept secret in a lot of ways as far as treatment options. But uh, we, we do have a space available, um, and, and you know, it's, it's uh, one of those things. If you have any questions or, or just need feedback, certainly pick up the phone and, and give us a call. That's fantastic, Brad. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I think you guys are doing great work and uh, it, it's, it's a pleasure to, uh, to get to highlight you and, um, you guys are filling a niche that very few others are filling. So I just, I wish you continued success. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, John. That concludes episode 118 of the John of all trades podcast. That also concludes our episode for 2016. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being a part. Thank you, Brad Lucero, for bringing this show out on a high note. I adore you. I adore you who is sitting there listening and allowing me into your life. It is a privilege to bring you these shows. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. And here's the great content coming in 2017. A couple of other thank yous. The first one to our sponsor, 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. They've been our sponsor since the beginning. They do unbelievable work in the social media space, in the coalition building space, in the advertising space. Basically, if you have a message you need to reach a certain number of people, they will help you identify those people, they will help you craft the message, and they will get it in front of them at the lowest cost you could imagine. They are fantastic at what they do. They are unparalleled, and I'm proud to have them as my sponsor. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. We are a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. And I'll tell you what, it has been a pleasure being with you throughout 2016. I wish you a very happy holiday season, a very safe New Year's, and I can't wait to see you here in two weeks. We'll be back in 2017 with brand new episodes. It's very exciting. We've got great stuff coming. I've already got them lined up. And until then, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.